Welcome to the Sometimes Spouse Podcast. And today is Ask an Expert, where we ask experts in different forms of businesses to give us a little bit of advice on how to navigate this crazy world right now. Today we have Ross Russell with the law offices of Ross Russell and he's going to be talking about the CARE Act and how it affects small business owners. Welcome Ross. Well thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. We are so excited to have you. Um, he is a plethora of knowledge. Um, he, I've learned so much from Ross in the last couple of weeks from some presentations that he's done. And I just thought, oh, my listeners need to hear from Ross. So Ross, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a uh, <clears throat> business law attorney. I've practiced here in Waco. I've been in, in the practice for about five years now and uh, so I help small business owners uh, and large business owners um, with all different types of legal matters and uh, you know uh, just uh, living the good attorney life down here in Waco. That's awesome. What did you do in a previous life before law? Um, Well so I was a local musician here. I did that for a while. Um, Did a lot of odd jobs um <clears throat> working on the loading dock at MCC here in Waco so I uh, did that for a while um and you know odds and ends basically until until I got licensed now tell me and the listeners what your favorite hobby is uh well uh I, I'm a, a, a new <clears throat> new father so hobbies are non-existent other than <laughs> you know, spending time with my family. So uh, uh, before that, of course, it was music. But, you know, um, since then, now uh, between work and trying to spend every minute I can at home with my family, it's uh, there's no time for anything else. That is awesome. What is your specialty in law? Well, <clears throat> so I serve as an arbitrator for uh, multiple different uh types of cases that's you know a process where parties appoint a private judge and so the arbitrator is the private judge um that's probably the majority of my practice um other than that i serve as general counsel for uh several businesses large and small uh, across texas and the u.s um so you know i i suppose my specialty is business um but other than that the door is pretty much open uh, as long as you're not charged with a crime and don't want to get divorced. Uh, Other than that, uh, I can help you out. Awesome. So you've been educating people about the CARE Act and it's almost like it changes daily or weekly. It's just the craziest thing, this new world we're living in. Tell us a little bit about the CARE Act um, and what this helicopter money is. Yeah. So I guess it's uh, it's sort of important to when you're looking at the CARES Act to see what other countries did. You know, of course, we're dealing with a global pandemic, and everyone, um, as a matter of public health, needed to tell everyone to shelter in place to uh, stop the spread uh, because we don't. We have to. You know, you've heard stop the spread, flatten the curve. Uh, we have to make sure that people that do get infected um, fall within our healthcare capacity. Um, maybe a question as to why we didn't have the capacity in the first place, but that's a different 
question. Um, but so we have to keep it within there. And so everybody's got a shelter place. That means you can't go to work if you do anything that, you know, you touch people or whatever, and that you're non-essential. A lot of people are figuring out they're not essential. Um, so other countries looked in that and said, okay, we need to pay everyone their salaries or at least, you know, 80% or 90% of their salaries. And they gave money to people directly. Some other countries still saw it and said, well, what if we pay businesses not to fire people? So we pay businesses to continue paying their employees, even though they're not coming into work. And so um, other countries did that still. So we're talking about, you know, mostly in uh, the European Union and uh, Singapore and uh, South Korea did different variations of those. And when America, you know, the problem came here, we couldn't decide. So we did a little bit of everything. Um, so the uh, stimulus checks, as they're starting to be called, but they're really helicopter money. They're just, we're going to drop money into people's pockets. We're just going to print it, drop it, and um, that's going to help them out. Of course, it wasn't exactly enough, and we means tested it. Um, which there was a big push not to mean t means test because other places are not means testing it. But we said, um, if you're an individual and you make less than 75000 a year um, from the previous year, the question mark now since we're in the middle of tax filing season is what is the previous year? Maybe 2018, maybe 2019 if you filed for 2019. Um, but those are people that were really on the ball. Um, so if you are an individual and you make less than $75,000 a year, your AGI, uh, then you will get $1,200. If you are married filing jointly and you make under $150,000, then you'll get $2,400. And if you have a child and you make less than that, then you will get an additional $500 for every child. Um, interesting point on the children. Um, the cutoff is 17, um, but... Uh, there's also a point in which you can claim a dependent and get it, and that person could file their own taxes. So if you're 17 or 18 and you file your own taxes, you get 1200 whereas if your parents claim you, you get 500 except this is a decision that was made before in most cases. So it's not like you can really effectively game the system unless you really hurried up, unless you really paid attention early and hurried up and filed your 2019 taxes and changed things around. Um, for the most part, that's, that die is already cast. But that is our portion of the helicopter money payment, which is basically just twelve hundred or twenty four hundred. That's that's all that we did for that part. And I saw that it hit the. I guess people started getting it this week because my bank actually went down on Wednesday on the fifteenth, and then I saw something yesterday or something that it's because everybody was probably checking to see if that money hit. Yeah, yeah. It's similar situation with the healthcare is you would like to think that the bank's website is capable of every account holder logging on. Um, and it's, you know, you sort of say, well, what was your plan? You know, so yeah. it's an interesting, uh, but, you know, it's the case for every bank. So yeah, it's hit. So far, what I heard is it's hit everybody who received a refund in the previous year. Oh, wow. Must so, be nice. You know. That's, yeah, that's, that's pretty nice. <laughs> now, um, tell us a little bit about the enhanced unemployment uh, insurance that people are getting. That's 22 so this, million Americans. 
Exactly. So this is another, you know, this is sort of where the, uh, do we pay people? Do we pay employers? Do we pay? This is another way that we sort of muddled by saying, let's do all the above. Um, so for the standard unemployment insurance, um, you know, under the law before the CARES Act, if you were fired or laid off, so not if you quit, and only if you were an employee, and only if you were an employee for a certain amount of time, you could apply for unemployment insurance, and you'd have to show that you were continuously applying for a new job, um, have to show all kinds of things. It was a lot of hoops to jump through. There's still a lot of hoops to jump through. Mm -hmm. But um, under that old program, uh, you would apply, and in Texas, you would get um, anywhere from $70 a week at the low end to six or 700 a week at the high end. Well, what the CARES Act did was say, okay, whatever any state benefit is, we're going to add $600 a week to it. So that's pretty nice. Um, so it makes it a little more like your salary. Um, but then they also said, we're going to uh, include in that people who have quit their job, if they were worried about exposure and they're, um, you know, a uh, at-risk population. Um, in practice, I have no idea how that's actually being implemented, but that was in there. Um, I also said they're going to allow, for the first time ever, independent contractors, gig workers, um, uh, other folks to apply for it. Um, now, one thing that is uh, interesting to note, unemployment insurance is administered by the states. Um, and each state agency handles unemployment insurance. Um, the federal government issued these new guidelines to say that the states must do these things, but they're using the state apparatus to do it. So um, what that it means is you know, you're still applying in Texas with the, with the state government and uh, or you know in your other state. And a lot of these states, you know, the federal government said, hey, independent contractors are going to be covered. And a lot of these states said, okay, fine, but it's going to take us like a month to get this up and running, maybe more. Okay. And so as of right now, I believe yesterday I read that there were nine states that were now accepting applications for independent contractors. I don't believe Texas is one of them. Oh, wow. We're still being told, um, you know, we are supposed to be accepting your application, but we can't, and we will sometime in the future. Meanwhile, you know, bills come due. And, but say, well, you'll, you'll get some helicopter money. Uh, but, you know, in the meantime, you're just kind of waiting. But in theory, it's a very good, once it's up and running, and once you can actually get an application and get the money coming in, it's a, it's a very good benefit. In some cases, people will make more on unemployment than they made at their job. How is that going to, how are they going to transition from making more money from unemployment to going back to a job in a few months. Do you think that's going to get muddy? It, well, it may, except the benefits run out in four months. So uh -huh. um, regardless, you know, they have to, either they go into the new job with less pay or the benefits run out and then they get nothing. So it will, it will be kind of a bummer, but, uh, you know, it, at the very least it's good. It, from a macroeconomic standpoint, it's the most stimulating to the economy to 
infuse money to lower income folks than higher income folks. So the more that you can pump up anyone that has a lower income, the more that they're going to spend. Whereas higher income folks, you give them more money, they stick it in a savings account. Yeah. At least some. Yeah. I talked to a couple of my business friends yesterday. We were having a discussion and he goes, yeah, I got this stimulus package, but I'm just going to put it in the bank and I'm going to look for, I'm going to look for an opportunity to buy something up or put a down payment on something. I'm like, yep. That's what, that's what we do is we'll look for the opportunity for something to make even more money with that money instead of just spending it. Exactly. Well, it's, it's tax free too. Mm -hmm. it, you're not going to have to pay taxes on it, which anyone else can see, well, if you get $1,200 tax-free, um, you can have $1,200 or you can have $10 a month forever. And it's going to be way more than $1,200 as long as you don't, you know, die soon. Yeah. Um, but you know, that's, that's the, the right way to look at it if you can afford to look at it that way. And that's why, you know, sticking that money more in the pockets of lower income folks actually gets them spending more and is better in the short term probably in the long term, maybe better for folks that invest it. But. So I've heard a little bit of talk about a mortgage holiday and a rent holiday. Is this something that's true? Yes. Um, what's interesting is, so here's how they, they did this. So um, there was a big push for, you know, a moratorium on uh, evictions and foreclosures and all sorts of things. So instead what we got was, um, a short-term moratorium, but in a muddled way. So through you know, every mortgage in the U.S., other than, you know, seller finance and some non-mortgage lender um, mortgages are insured through um, a federal agency. It's FHA, the VA, Fannie, Freddie, Ginnie Mae, whatever, you know, all these different ones. And they ultimately regulate um, the mortgage industry through these, you know, uh, backstops. And what they can do is tell you, you know, whether or not you can foreclose and can't, and if someone is officially in default and what, and so what happened is they said, okay, well, you're going to have to give at least a three month, uh, holiday to anyone that asks it for it, um, for their mortgage payments. Um, but then it kind of gets a little bit murky because they say it can be extended for six months up to six months twice. So basically we're looking at a year off. Um, on the rent front, it's a little bit more difficult because what they say is if you're a landlord who has a mortgage that is federally backed and you have a tenant and that tenant doesn't pay, then you're not allowed to evict them or else you'll be in default of your mortgage. Um, you know, my question to that is, how do they know? Um, because you're not required to tell your mortgage servicer or mortgage originator or, or any mortgage company that you have a tenant. Um, you're required to tell them whether or not it's your homestead. That's it. Hmm. Um, and so it's, and even then, I find it very hard to believe um, that any of these mortgage companies will be economically motivated to foreclose on a landlord who just wants to get paid his rent. Because if the landlord doesn't get paid, then he may not pay his mortgage. And then you're back to the original holiday of, oh, well, I'm affected by coronavirus and therefore I'm not going to pay you for up to a year. And so then you, you know, sort of backstop into the original mortgage holiday. Now, the big issue with 
this program is um, that the way the mortgage industry works is, you know, you originate a mortgage and you sell it. A bank usually originates a mortgage and sells it to a servicer. That servicer gets a fee to service the mortgage. They usually bundle up uh, their payments and put it into uh, either CLOs, collateralized loan obligations, or um, a mortgage-backed security, um, some sort of fund or anything like that. And then one other layer, um, though they sell out those funds, either the CLOs or um, the uh, mortgage-backed securities, and then those are bought by mortgage REITs or REITs, you know, real estate investment trusts. A lot of those are publicly traded. And those pay very steady dividends, and those are in a lot of pension funds. And so you can see where a lot of the, the backstop, you know, if the, the borrower stops paying for a year, the servicer still has to pay under all of these clauses. So the servicer still has to pay um, all of the CLOs and the mortgage-backed securities and the MREITs to you know, depend on that payment. And the servicer, usually they're not very liquid because this is a, you know, well, at least what we thought in 2007 and what we started to think again very quickly is that this is a safe haven. Nothing's going to go wrong. No one's ever defaulted on their mortgage or at least, you know, not in mass. Mm-hmm. It's never going to happen, you know, except that it did and it may again. And so that's the problem. Um, with this program and why uh, the Mortgage Bankers Association has been asking the Federal Reserve to print money and pay them the fees that they're going to have to pay because there's a holiday on mortgages. So that's that's the brief overview of the problem, you know, the sort of cascading effects of this. I mean, it's great. You want people that are without a job temporarily through no fault of their own, not to have to pay the mortgage. That makes perfect sense. Um, but, you know, if they, they their 401k ends up going bankrupt or their, you know, pension ends up going bankrupt because of this cascading effect, and that's not good either. Mm-hmm. It creates other problems. And if their mortgage servicer goes belly up, then it's even worse because they don't even know where to send a check once it is time to send a check. So that was an imperfect solution and it, could cause a lot of other problems in the future. Yeah, this kind of thing, it's not going to last just for a few months. its It sounds like it's going to cascade out for years. Exactly, yeah. It, it's, it, it sounds like the effects of this, if they get a year-long, uh, you know, forbearance, um, then, yeah, the, the trickle-down effects could take another two to three years to actually flow through the economy and feel the uh, effects of it. And I mean, that's not even considering the fact that this pandemic might be with us for another year or two. You know, I mean, we're hoping for a vaccine in 12 to 18 months, but that is a very best case scenario. So if we're in this situation until the middle of 2022, which is very likely, um, then, you know, we're looking at two years, you know, of Congress extending this for another year. And, um, you know, the mortgage industry was crowing about a four and a half percent forbearance rate because they were not leveraged properly to handle four and a half percent. If that gets up to 15, I mean, the, the bankruptcy effects are going to be huge. Wow. 
Now, I know that there's a student loan holiday or interest holiday, something like that. Can you explain that to our listeners? Sure, absolutely. So it is um, the student loan, there's going to be zero interest on your student loans until October. Um, that was done by executive order. Uh, that's also enshrined in the law in this, uh, in the CARES Act. Um, but there's also uh, no payments due for at least three months. Now, what I've seen through regulation since this has been passed is that the Department of Education has given guidance to student loan servicers to say, um, you need to put everyone into forbearance until October. You can still make payments if you want, um, but you know there's zero interest until October. There should be zero payments until October. So um, the Department of Education has sort of enhanced this a little bit since um, since it was all passed. Um, wow. One sort of additional wrinkle that's good for a lot of self-employed folks is that um, in the CARES Act, what was also put in was employers can get a tax break for paying off the student loans of their employees, even if you are the employee and the employer. So it's up to 5,700 or so. So it's not all of your, but right now, if you are liquid enough and you have the cash, um, then student loans are at 0% interest. You can pay all principal. You can pay $5,000 of principal down on your student loans and get a tax break for it. So, you know, it's kind of a double whammy there. That's, that's a, a nice little thing for some people. Yeah. And there's also a new tax deadline. When is that? Yeah. So July 15th is the new tax deadline. Um, that was done by executive order, but the CARES Act fixed one. Well, they had tried it in the law and uh, they did one little quirk um, for anyone that self-employed, you know, your estimated taxes and your 941s, you know, you pay every quarter. Um, when they moved the deadline uh, for everything from April 15th to July 15th, they said everything that is due on April 15th is now due on July 15th. But everybody knows that Q2 is due on June 15th. And so for a long time, um, you know, a month or two, Q2 was due before Q1. That was weird. Um, but now they fixed it. Everything is to be filed on July 15th. I mean, you could file it earlier if you want, but um, if you, you know, if you're going up to the deadline, then July 15th for uh, last year's payment, your last year's taxes, Q1 and Q2. I know as a small business owner, I've had to tap into my IRA before. What kind of um, limits do they have on that right now? So what's interesting now is this is sort of the IRA, the retirement account parachute, right? You can pull out up to $100,000 penalty-free, not tax-free, but penalty-free from your IRA um, as a way to you know, help you bridge the gap if you if you need to tap that. Um, it, it's a nice idea. It's a horrible time to be cashing out of your stocks, right? You know, it everything's is. down. So it's it, it's kind of a painful parachute, but if you have to have it, you have to have it. Um, the other benefit is they, they also suspended the uh, RMD uh, requirement for the year. So um, it's good if you want to let it ride, if you need to let something ride. Um, that's, that's good if you can afford it. Um, this is sort of, 
in the realm of the student loan tax credit where you know there's a little something for everybody some people that want to take advantage of the downturn uh, this is one of those provisions for them you can just let it ride if you don't need to distribute don't need to bail out don't even want to take a rmd then you can just keep on rolling it's almost like they opened this buffet for us like you could take from here you could take from here you could do this or you could do that it's really interesting exactly, exactly. <laughs> It makes it more confusing because you have to, to get the maximum benefit, you have to eat from a little bit of every plate. And so that's, you know, it, it maybe would have been better if, you know, just to give you an idea as far as, you know, Canada's helicopter money approach, which was 8000 per person um, and ours, if they took the $2.2 trillion in that the CARES Act was and just gave everyone instead of 1200 the max that that money would give everyone would have about $22,500. Oh wow. So you know, I mean, I, I like the all the other provisions but I might have preferred everybody it, it certainly would have stimulated the economy a lot better if they had given $22,000 and given it to everyone that makes under 75,000 or 150,000 a year that would have just really, we might have had that V-shaped recovery that everyone's talking about that isn't going to happen. Like, we'll give you $22,000, stay at home. Let's get rid of this. Yeah. yeah. They could have marketed it a little bit different then, huh, Ross? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> now, there's a lot of provisions for the small businesses in the CARE Act. Can you tell us about some of those? Yeah, so the uh, the main ones are these regarding SBA loans. Um, and there's sort of an interesting um, choice that you have to make uh, because there is an employee retention tax credit, a payroll tax credit of up to 10,000 per employee that you can take and it's refundable. So if it goes below zero, you get the cash back. Um, and you can take that uh, only if you don't take out these SBA loans forgivable loans. Um, so you kind of, you have a fork in the road right there. You have to decide, okay, do I want to do a refundable tax credit or do I want to do the loan? So you got to start doing math as far as what's, what's better for you um, mm -hmm. in that regard. For some people, the tax credit's going to be better. And for those, it's easy. You sit back and do nothing. Um, you know, you'll get it back at the end of the year. You could get it back every quarter. You, the, the IRS is allowing you to do that. Um, most employers are not doing that because you don't want to get hit with a penalty if you do it wrong. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's money now versus money at the end of the year. If you can afford to let it ride, then you let it ride. Um, but on the loan front, so the SBA always offers uh, economic injury disaster loans, EIDLs. Those happen like when you have a natural disaster, like a hurricane, a tornado, whatever, you know, anything like that. Um, those come up all the time. Um, but, uh, you know, so those, those are here um, in this as well. But, but what they've added is the new program called the Paycheck Protection Program, PPP, um, which is an additional SBA loan that is forgivable. So the EIDLs are just low interest loans. You can get them, you have to pay them back. It's uh, normally 3.75% interest. Um, and at the end of the day, you pay it back. You can spread it out over a 10 to 30 year term. So, you know, an unsecured um, 
loan over 30 years at 3.75% interest is nice. Um, but the PPP, instead, it is a loan that is meant to pay businesses to pay their employees. So you, you don't fire them. And if you use it for that purpose, then it'll be forgiven. Um, and so the way it works is you are eligible to take out a loan for um, up to two and a half times your average 2019 monthly payroll and uh, with a limit of $10 million. So it can't be any more than 10 million. And um, it won't count. There's some, there's some discrepancy as to whether or not it goes to your loan limit or your loan forgiveness limit. In, in practicality, it doesn't make a whole lot of a difference how you, where you apply it. But for employees that make over a hundred thousand a year, either every dollar over that doesn't count towards your limit. So you can't, you can't take any more out for each of those, or it doesn't get forgiven, whichever one. Now that works out to $8,333.33 per month. So that is your limit per employee per month. Um, there's also a interesting issue as far as what exactly is the definition of payroll. Um, in the definition section of the statute, it actually excludes um, taxes paid, which means that your payroll that you could take a loan out for is what your employees net. And then you have to pay them gross to get it forgiven. So that's not a good deal. Um, but uh, in practice now, a lot of people are just kind of saying, uh, Congress either didn't mean that or they didn't know what they're talking about or we're just going to ignore it. No one's going to call us on it. And it'll be fine. And for the most part, it has been. Uh, I don't. I haven't heard of any banks that have said, wait a minute, if you look in the definition section, it did, no, they're all saying their government's giving us money to give you money and then we get to keep 1% interest. We're not going to ask any questions. Whatever they say they're good with, we're going to take it. Um, so, uh, the, but the way that that works is it's your 2019, it's two and a half times your 2019 payroll. And then in order to get it uh, forgiven, you have to keep your, you have to have been in business at February 15th, 2020. You have to keep your business operational and you have to keep your payroll constant from February 20th, 2020 to June 30th. Now, one sort of wrinkle is, so they say it's forgivable if you use it for payroll, rent, uh, utilities, you know, certain very specific business expenses like your rent for your office, mortgage interest for your office if you bought your office space um, or your payroll. But you are required to keep all your employees on your payroll from February 15th until June 30th. Um, so, you know, that it's two and a half times payroll, that's, that's going to cover it. You're going to pay it for two months and then maybe you've got a half month to play with for some rent or anything, except wait a minute, if you've done the math, from February 15th until June 30th, that's more than two months. That's more than two and a half months. So the bargain is if you can pay your employees four months of payroll, we will pay for two and a half of it. Um, for some businesses, that's not an option. For some, it is an option. Um, but for some, they're, they're, they just can't say, I can't afford any another week without sales. Um, so you know, that's, that's another issue. Um, 
the most pressing issue, perhaps, um, sort of maybe skipping over some of the finer details, is that as of, you know, midnight the 15th or yesterday at noon or whenever, the exact time is unclear, the program officially ran out of money, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, so uh, what we've heard is it ran out of money, and so therefore everything is stopped, and all these applications that are pending are just going to keep pending. And if Congress allocates more money to it, then we'll get it. If they don't, then we won't, whatever. Well, so there's some fights on Capitol Hill about whether or not they're going to actually refund it. Um, The consensus has been they will add an additional $250 billion to it. It was a $350 billion program. It had over a trillion dollars of need. So we're still underfunding it, um, which is another reason why people might end up with the tax credit, whether they want to or not, because they might not be able to choose the PPP. Mm-hmm. Um, the issue, and there may be more funding to the PPP, you know, even beyond what they're talking about, because, you know, there's some talk of, well, we need to have more backstops for funding hospitals and states and other things like that. Um that is also being considered. So we don't know what we're going to get at the end result. Now, where the program might could keep trucking along is the Federal Reserve, you know, as part of this, Congress deposited about a half a billion dollars, I mean, half a trillion dollars, excuse me, into the Federal Reserve for all of these facilities, which the Federal Reserve now has um, cut interest rates to, you know, between zero and 0.25, which is the lowest it's been since the Great Recession. Um, As of right now, Chair Powell has said he doesn't want to go below zero, um, which is sort of hampering the tools that the Federal Reserve has from a monetary policy standpoint. Um, I believe that they will run out of runway and end up going below zero. I think we will see negative interest rates soon. Um, But because they don't want to go to a negative Fed funds rate um, like we've seen in the Eurozone and Switzerland and other places. Uh, They've started doing quantitative easing, um, which if you remember back in the 09, 10, all that time when Yellen was at the Federal Reserve, what that was was Federal Reserve would buy up treasuries um, in order to further tamp down the interest rate on treasuries. Um, And the reason for that is the Fed funds rate was trying to change the Treasury percentage yield, but it just wasn't successful um, because that's that's your interbank rate. And um, the Treasury market sometimes does different things. But your mortgage is based on the 10 year. Um, You know, your loans are based on the 10 year. So a lot of uh, interest rates are based on treasury yields. And the best way to make treasury yields go down is to make the price of the treasuries go up, which is to create more demand, which means you need to print money and buy treasuries. That was quantitative easing. Hmm. Um, They also did that with mortgage-backed securities um, during that crisis to try to stop the flow of cascading bankruptcies back in the housing crisis. Um, So Powell has decided he's going to do that on steroids. So he's bought more treasuries. He started buying corporate debt now. Uh, so the Federal Reserve owns a lot of you know, AT&T, Ford, whatever, you know, all these 
bonds from them. Um, they've announced multiple facilities to lend directly to large businesses, um, which you know they can print their own money, so they're printing money to lo- lend directly huh. to large businesses, which is um, a new program. And also, they're saying they're going to do that for small businesses. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the application process is going to be with the Federal Reserve. But um, more importantly, circling back into the PPP, the Federal Reserve has said, well, I will, we will print money and infuse it into banks in order to participate further with the PPP. Um, I haven't seen whether or not any banks have said, well, now that we've got money from the Federal Reserve, we'll just keep going. Um, I don't think that is what is going to happen. I think most banks are going to say, we want to you know, rely on the statute. We want to rely on the statute saying the Treasury will give us money and allow us to forgive it. Um, but nonetheless, that's, that's sort of where we are. We're out of money. Um, so if you've applied and you've gotten approved, then great, you're in. If you've applied and you haven't gotten approved, uh, you're probably just going to wait for Congress. Um, wow. And just see what happens after that. Um, uh, odds are good that they will allocate more. Um, but, uh, you know, I, early on in the earlier days, I said, you know, for businesses that have independent contractors, you look at the PPP because independent contractors can apply for the PPP for themselves to cover their own payroll. Mm-hmm. But they have to balance that against this enhanced unemployment insurance. What's going to be better, your average 2019 salary or, uh, you know, unemployment plus $600 a week? Um, you know, for some people, unemployment's going to be better. If the PPP runs out of money, which it already has, but if it is continues to be out of money, then if you're an independent contractor, unemployment is your only option other than, you know, the PPP will be gone. So you'll need to go and file for unemployment as a gig worker or un, uh, you know independent contractor if you are actually out of work rather than PPP yourself. How much further do you think unemployment's going to climb? Um, well, the numbers that just came out yesterday show that every single job that's been created since 2009 has been wiped out. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, the population has grown. The working age population has grown by about 5 million. And we've lost about 24 million jobs, wow. um, which is all that was created from 09 to the present. Um, based on what um, some of the local Federal Reserve governors have said and uh, the Goldman Sachs prediction, it looks like unemployment could reach 30%. And we could see a contraction of U.S. GDP by about half, um, which is, you know, when you look at unemployment, the previous record before all of this um, was reached in the Great Recession in 2009. Um, and that was 665,000 unemployed per week. We have reached uh, at the peak 16.8 million. Uh-huh. So um, that's a huge number in magnitude, far above 
um, even the previous record, which remember the previous record was also greater than the Great Depression. So, you know, we are um, certainly looking at, there's, there's a, a bit of a, a wonky disagreement as to what exactly a depression is. Is a depression a recession that lasts for a decade? Or is a depression a steep recession? Um, so economists disagree. There's no actual official definition of a depression. But, you know, if we look at um, what unemployment was in the Great Depression, at the height of the Great Depression, unemployment was 22.5%. Um, so the, the prediction of 30%, obviously, is much worse than the Great Depression. Um, you know, I mean, from a macroeconomic standpoint, we have better monetary policy than we had back then. Um, we have done a lot of um, inflationary things to try to stop everything because um, we're, we're not worried about hyperinflation now. We may be in five to 10 years, but we're not right now. Um, and so that might blunt the force. And it is a little bit different because this is a voluntary, you know, this is a induced coma. Mm -hmm. You know, this is not uh, a shock because of, you know, overspeculation in one sector or another. But, you know, and, and this is big, but before this, everyone talked about no one has $400 to scrape together for, you know, an emergency. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, no one has a rainy day fund and it's raining. Um, so, you know, we're depending on these infusions of cash that are by all likelihood the hole that was created by just this current um, economic, you know, forced economic downturn was about $10 trillion or so in force and lost economic activity. We've plugged it with a $2.2 trillion stimulus plan and $4 trillion of, um, you know, printed money from the Federal Reserve of monetary. And so, I mean, we're looking at six and we've got a hole that's 10. You know, this is pretty much the same thing that happened in 08, 09, where everyone agreed that the uh, Great Recession had a downturn of about one and a half trillion dollars and we spent 780 something billion in the stimulus mm -hmm. to try to plug it and it wasn't enough and we slogged along very slow um in the road to recovery you know it's it's also worth noting that this ppp program that we're all um so in love with is which it is great it is a great program while they're giving away money take it um but uh this was first thought up in the middle of the Great Depression, or at least the beginning, by Herbert Hoover. And uh, it was a plan that uh, they created the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, which was basically like the SBA, uh, but back in the 30s. And uh, they did exactly this, except it was six months uh, payroll instead of two months. And as far as a percentage of GDP, it was a pretty similar payment um, you know, that was allocated. So, you know, um, will this fix us? Well, you know, did it fix the Great Depression? No. So um, as far as how bad things will get, there's a lot of runway for them to get worse. Um, you know, it's not that I want to be doom and gloom because, you know, we anybody that's seen businesses during the Great Depression, you know that, um Many, many a millionaire were minted in the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. People that during that downturn decided, bye, bye, bye. Um, 
bought up a lot of assets and rode the wave um, up until you know the the height of the stock market when it reached the pre depression highs, which by the way, if you bought in 1929 before the crash and then did nothing through the whole great depression, you would have come back to what you were in 1929 in 1954. That's how long it took. Um, but if you bought at the bottom, you could have become, you know, a, a millionaire very quickly because it, you know, it stayed, it bottomed for several years. And during a brief period in 1937, um, some of the uh, stimulus was pulled back and we had a brief sort of mini recession where it went down. But but on the whole, the growth rate was much higher than anything we've seen in, in either of our lifetimes. Um, you know, during the Great Depression, during that growth period, um, you know, we saw the economy grow six, eight percent, you know, numbers that we just haven't seen since then. What kind of advice would you have for small business owners right now? Well, I think the first thing is, you know, uh, you want to be liquid and you want to be, you know, prepared for uh, an interruption of revenue, obviously. Um, you want to take advantage of every program that you can. Um, and if you have the cash reserves, and I mean, obviously, you know, on a personal level, you need to make sure you're able to weather the storm separate and apart from your business. Mm-hmm. Um but on a business level, you need to make sure you can weather the storm for a short period of time and that you've got enough cash that you can make acquisitions. Now is the time to make gigantic acquisitions. Um, you know, one of the reasons that Berkshire Hathaway was so successful is that during the Great Recession, it bought and bought and bought to the point where uh, the shares of American Express that Berkshire Hathaway owns, there's such a tax gain to it that it's more efficient to take the dividend and not sell, you know, there would be such a tax hit with selling all of that. They have to just become, uh, you know, a permanent owner of American Express um, just for economic reasons. So, you know, I would say, you know, and that's, that's on the large business side, but if you're a small business, now might be the time to um, see how your competitors are doing and uh, if they're if you're looking and seeing that they're struggling, maybe go have some coffee with them and uh, talk about an acquisition. And uh, you know, it, it's it, during downturns um, more than in normal times. Big fish eat little fish, and it's the time to gobble up all of your competition. Um, and it's it's also the time to ready yourself. It's not the time for public funding, you know, to start. Uh, bringing in a lot of investors. Um, it may be the time to bring in some, but it's the time to ready yourself for when the market is coming up to be able to tell the story of I survived, you know, Great Depression Part Two, mm-hmm. and, you know, my business grew. And that is why my shares are now worth, you know, whatever. My company is now valued at 10 times what it was before all of this because I gobbled up three small competitors. Uh, you know, doubled my revenue and now, you know, you need to come on board. And that's, that's the recipe that I've seen that, uh, you know, companies did in 08 and 09 that I think will copy here. And, you know, from a, a macro standpoint, 
it's somewhat bad because it's going to lessen your competition and it's going to make prices go up for consumers. But from the business owner that's able to charge more because you've gobbled up all of your other competition, that's going to, that's going to increase margins. So there's probably going to be a little bit of a rubber band effect of margins are squeezed, you gobble up competition, margins expand. Um, then with public pressure and uh, you know other concerns, more competition comes in, margin gets squeezed again. But hopefully while margins are large, you've brought in multiple investors and have been able to get yourself liquid enough to weather that margin squeeze to then do rinse and repeat for the next downturn. Now, Ross, if somebody wanted to get a hold of you, how would they contact you? Well, um, you can always uh, shoot me over an email. Um, I am at rrussell at therussellawfirm.com. Um, they can always call my office. Um, you know, my office number uh, is local here, 254-307-0019. Um, not really on any social media. I do have a LinkedIn. You could maybe sometimes catch me there. Um, you could send me a, a message, but uh, most of the time, good old fashioned email or phone call. Uh, that'd be the best way to reach me. So before I end my podcast, I always like to ask like an out uh, right ball field question. So Ross, if you were stranded on a desert island and all of your human needs were met and you could take two things with you on this desert island, what would those two things be? Hmm. It's interesting. I, I, I don't want to challenge the, the pre presumption of human needs, but um, shelter and I'm assuming the TV is not a human need. No, it's not. Then that's probably what I, uh, if I'm thinking practically, I'm going to be bored out of my mind. Um, so I, I would take a, a TV and uh, some sort of internet connection uh, just because assuming I can't leave the island, um, then that's what I would do. I'd want to, I'd, I would want, uh, yeah, I, I'd want that. I'm not going to pick a book because a book you'd only get one. Yeah. I want something that I can get multiple streams of, of something. So an internet connection and a TV, that's what I'd take. That is awesome. Thank you so much for joining us on Ask an Expert. Um, it has been an honor uh, to be able to interview you. And uh, I highly recommend Ross. He is amazing. You guys, thank you for joining the Sometime Spouse podcast. This has been Ask an Expert with Christy Ogle and today's guest, Ross.